Hello and welcome to Systematically, your weekly theology podcast. I'm John Heaps talking to you from Austin, Texas. I'm here with two of our hosts, Ryan Hemmer. Hey, Ryan. Yo. And Robin Beret. Hello. We are, sadly, sans Brian Baycheck. Uh, he has important seminary responsibilities this morning, so we're missing. He's an adult. He's just a grown person. Um, Those transitional deacons aren't going to ordain themselves. They are not. Uh, though, in fairness, Brian isn't going to ordain them either. But fair enough. He does need to be there, I guess. Uh, so today we're going to do one more of our uh, guest intro questions. Just to just to reset with those. Eventually, we're going to have some guests. We've been talking to a couple people, got some exciting folks who want to have come and uh, talk to us and talk to you and to get to know them a little bit, get them comfortable in our weird uh, Zoom facilitated podcast situation. We will ask them sort of semi-frivolous questions. And, uh, and then we're going to talk today. Robin's going to talk to us about the theology of children, and we're going to see where that leads us a wandering. I've got treasures old and new, um, and that'll about do it for us. So Ryan, this week you had our guest intro question. Yeah. So uh, this is what I want to know this week um, from, from each of you, and then I'll, I'll answer my own question. Uh, what is your most memorable cooking fail? I lived by myself when I lived in Boston, getting a master's in philosophy at Boston College. And I've mentioned maybe before that I, as a, as a young graduate student, took to baking because it was a, a, a task that had a determinate beginning, middle, and end. And at the end, you had a concrete product, which is in rather serious distinction from philosophy. And so it helped keep me sane. And one night I was baking and I was making... I think it was a white chocolate and raspberry muffin. Had a whole tin of them. And they were finished. And so I opened my little tiny galley kitchen oven and I pulled the rack out to check to make sure they were done. And when I went to, and they were done. And when I went to grab the pan with my like uh, oven mitt thing on, I bumped the pan, which was nonstick coated. And it slid off the back of the rack that I had slid out and flipped and landed upside down on the electric oven heating unit. Uh, It's not ideal. No, it sucked. I said so many of the bad words. And then I went on Twitter and said more of the bad (laughs) words uh, because the universe needed to know about the depths of my frustration. Uh, So that took a lot of of cleaning uh, to get carbonized uh, chocolate. Uh, white chocolate and raspberry muffin off of my heating unit. Did did you make a second round of muffins? Oh no 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 not that night. Uh, we were we were done with cooking for the evening. Okay, that is a that is he a. Dr- he drank his carbs for the rest of the night. <laughs> well, I didn't drink then. I, what was I supposed to do? Well, and that goes back. That's another story of uh, my second year in Boston. I was very depressed, uh, and. I confessed to my mother on the phone one night that I'd eaten most of a family pack of Oreos. And she said, oh, honey, you don't drink. You have to do something. <laughs> Everyone needs advice. Robin? Well, I don't, I mean, this is going to sound terrible. I don't really have a, a memorable cooking fail, either because I don't have any or because I have a deliciously selective memory where I only remember good things about myself and never remember my failures. So, so your so, your memory selects deliciousness is what you're saying. Yeah, I mean, actually, like it's kind of like, you know, like it's like the opposite of being plagued by anxiety where like, you know, like you're lying in bed at like three in the morning and you just remember all the dumb stuff you've done. Well, this is like the opposite. Like I just feel like remember when you did that dumb thing? I'm like, nah, nope, no idea. It's gone. Robin Bray, plagued with self-confidence. I, it's, it's a cross I have to bear, you guys. But actually, I was taught... Con- to cook- condemned to equanimity. <laughs> it's a rough life. Um, but my mother, I mean, I think most of it is that my mother is a, is a phenomenal cook. And she taught all of us to. She taught me, you know, before I moved away from home. So I kind of had the tools for success. Uh, but I didn't want to disappoint you guys. So... My grandmother. So, so you went out and you, you failed at cooking something last night. <laughs> Actually, yeah. <laughs> Just to have a story. 
just have a story. No, but um, my grandmother, who was a hilarious woman in many, many respects, has, I guess, had uh, a card catalog of like hilarious and embarrassing stories, um, which may or may not have involved cooking. But when she was first married to my grandfather, um, they had, they hosted a dinner party, as you do. And um, because it was the 19, you know, either 40s or 50s. I can't remember when they got married. I think the 50s. Um, she made meatloaf, which among all of its properties, one of them is um, slickness. <laughs> so she had like the whole meal on the table. Everyone was around dining room table and she was carrying this meatloaf in when being my grandmother, she tripped and the meatloaf slid off the plate and across the floor of the kitchen. <laughs> And at which point my grandmother was kind of looking at it and like no one really saw. She's like, well, I don't have anything else to serve them. And the floor is pretty clean. So she just picked up the meatloaf, scraped off. She five off second the, rolled it. She, well, she, and she just, it's meatloaf, right? Just scraped off a little bit of the bottom of the took, meatloaf. Took one layer Whoop. out. Nice. Stuck it back on the plate and served it to her company. That's terrific. There's a Canadian joke about, you know, a freshly zamboni kitchen floor in there. I just, I can't, I can't quite get it to come together in my mind. Get the bat off your shoulder. I get it. <laughs> That's terrific. All right, Ryan. Um, <clears throat> so I don't know that this is uh, the most epic of cook- cooking fails, but it is the one that uh, I remember most readily. So this was a few years ago. Uh, we were in our, our apartment in Milwaukee and we had just had our first child and neither of us were sleeping or, um, you know, we we're just trying to not die uh, as one does as a new parent. And so I was um, relying on muscle memory uh, mostly for cooking. And so I was um, in a zombie-like state making uh, red sauce. and. Um, you know, I, I, I try to stick to the Alton Brown recipes as best I can. And uh, the one thing I do add is a, is a few uh, red pepper flakes just to give it a little kick. But on most red pepper flake bottles, uh, there are two openings. Uh, one that's for spoons and one that's slotted for shaking. And uh, in my new parent zombie state, I opened the wrong one. And what was supposed to be a dash became a deluge. And <laughs> nearly half the bottle of uh, red pepper flakes landed oh. right in the red sauce. And because it's me, I thought, well, um, we, can sell, we can fix this. We can salvage this. And so I just started was skimming that, was that an ex- was that an, uh, red expression pepper flakes of, off. Was that an expression of, of uh, optimism or frugality? Frugality, and uh, that's, that's, the, what I thought. that's the politically correct word for it. Yeah. Um, but at any rate, uh, I, I got as many other pepper flakes out as I could, served it up. My wife took one bite, spat it back out, uh, and said, absolutely not. And then for the next three days, I had uh, just the spiciest red sauce that I ever red sauced, uh, stubbornly eating every bite of it for for uh not wanting to get rid of any of it so that's amazing um yeah that was memorable <laughs> that's a bummer that's a that's a sad it was a bummer that situation so uh a peek behind the curtain and full disclosure uh, my eight well, almost 18 month old daughter has a horrific cold which she has totally given to me and so right now i am uh i've pulled off my bookshelf in my office um Rasmussen's musical taste as a religious question in 19th century America, which uh, is not, in fact, a book I have any interest in reading, will not be a treasure old or new, but out of which I have cut many, many pages in order to make room for a very lovely Stay Sharp Best Made pewter flask that has uh, hopefully just enough bourbon in it still. Here you can hear me unscrewing it uh, to make my throat feel better so that I can talk to all of you and not be uh, in terrible head cold agony. Full full effect here. All right. We have visual confirmation that it is uh, indeed a 
a, a glass worth of uh, of bourbon. A glass worth. It's a finger of bourbon in a very small glass. It may or may not be eight forty five a.m. But uh, you know, like I said, it's a, it's a fat ago. finger of bourbon. Oh, easy now. Uh, but like I said about you know Robin and her tea a couple weeks ago, we got to keep those vocal cords velvety for all of you. All right. Well, now that we're prepared, uh, this week Robin is going to tell us a little something about the theology of children, which is something that she works on in her. Uh, scholarship and professional life. So, hey, Robin, tell us about the theology of children. Oh, thanks, John. I will. Um, so, the theology of children kind of, I, I, I stumbled into it, you, should, you could say, or, well, I, ne- I naively assumed that there was a, a, uh, a nice bucket of theology of children scholarship out there, of which I could skim off the cream um, and use it as kind of a basis for um, what is the central um, part of my work, which is theological ethics, uh, specifically bioethics uh, involving children. Um, I focus especially on decision making um, at the end of life, but decision making in general, like when do children get to participate? What does that kind of participation look like? How should we be thinking about children and bioethics? All those sorts of questions kind of the centrality of my work. Um, but when I, but because I do theological ethics, I wanted this work to not only be philosophically and kind of ethically informed, but theologically informed. And so, um, but when I went to look for what exists in theological ethics of children, um, I found one book. Uh, there are a few essays as well out there, but it's not a huge field. And even theology of children itself, um, you know, uh, there just isn't a lot. So today, on, so that's how I kind of got into this topic. Um, and uh, today I just want to introduce you to it and to some of basically what's going on in the field and also what are some of the pertinent questions that either are raised or uh, pertinent questions that I think ought to be raised and maybe aren't getting fully um, fleshed out or maybe identified and discussed in different ways. So. Um, yeah, we're kind of basically, John and Ryan will jump in whenever they have thoughts and questions and we'll see where the conversation goes. I don't have a particular argument I'm putting forward this morning, um, except for here are some, I'm arguing for differentiations of questions that need to be, to be made. So, Great. Um, theology of children itself really isn't a topic until the 80s, the 90s. I mean, you get a little bit of stuff kind of earlier than that. But um, when you're looking at the history of theology and you're looking at children, most of what you're doing is what is implied by or inferred from um, what theologians and philosophers have to say about kind of humanity in general and and what makes someone human and all that sort of stuff. So um, those historical views can be categorized in roughly three groupings. Um, and uh, uh, for this grouping, I for this kind of categorization, I actually um, am entirely indebted to a scholar named John Wall, who kind of put this out. I don't think he's his categorization is 100% correct in every way, but um, it's quite a useful way to organize it. So he identifies three views um, of children kind of throughout the history of ethics, specifically. Um, and... Uh, The first is what he calls a top-down approach. So this approach is associated with Plato, uh, with St. Paul, apparently, uh, Augustine, Calvin, Kant. And in this view, essentially, children are seen as fundamentally depraved, uh, unruly or animal-like, and they require order imposed on them from parents or society. And so in this uh, this view, uh, humans begin life uh, in a kind of wild animality or even original sin. The teleological aim is to create morally coherent relations in societies based on larger transcending principles, such as moral reason, God's will, traditional values, or common good. And the obligation basically comes down to each person playing their proper social role. So think about Plato and the importance of of the citizen, for example. And so so in this view, right, like, and, and, and in this view, there's often a misunderstanding because Partly because of a lack, I think, of differentiation on, on particular questions, which is um, 
are children human beings and how do we understand childhood? So people are often going to say, well, like Augustine, because he has this top-down approach and because, you know, he doesn't think that children are human beings. Well, that's not really true at all. Actually, one of the fundamental um, convictions of Christianity and actually of, of the Jews before them uh, is that children were fully human being. And that's why in the Jewish law, you see all sorts of, um, uh, you see punishments and re- um, for people who harm pregnant women, and they have to pay usually restitution for the fetus as well as, as the woman if she's harmed. Um, and, and that's why the Jews and then the Christians in Greco-Roman time uh, didn't allow abortion or the exposure of children just something that was fairly common in that time period and milieu. So um, so sometimes these questions get basically phrased as, well, do these people think that children are human beings? Well, it ends up being actually that, like, inferring that ends up being a much more difficult question when you're looking at historical sources, partly because a lot of philosophers, like, in, uh, weren't particularly interested in that question, or they just assumed, like, that children you know, that human beings are human beings and, and they don't take a lot of time to, to differentiate, well, which kind of members of the species are, are, partly because like Plato and Aristotle are speciesists, right? So is Augustine, so is Aquinas. So, so that question like, is a child a human being doesn't really come up. They're much more concerned with, well, how do we understand childhood? And so, um, uh, and there's been a lot of good uh, history of children written in the last 40 years, I guess. Um, and, uh, you know, so the, the, the uh, point you were making before about, um, sort of speciesism, uh, as an approach is, is in a way a kind of mm, limitation, let's say of the development in Plato and then into Aristotle and on of, uh, a theoretical approach, right. An, an approach that asks after, after definition, and specifically a definition that um, isn't, uh, I mean, especially right in a kind of platonic view, the, the sort of materiality of change and development and things like that, uh, it would seem like, like that would uh, militate against being able to speak in a sophisticated way about development. Um, well, yeah, and you, in Plato, you don't see, that's why Plato's in the top-down view for, like, Wall's characterization, whereas, like, we'll come to Aristotle later, who mm-hmm. has a more development view. I think what I'm saying here is that asking the question, like, trying to infer, based on views of childhood, whether or not, like, philosophers from the past are wondering if children are actually human beings or human persons, is a modern question you're putting back on oh, okay. historical sources that don't really they're not really answering that. Like even, and, and there's, um, well, I can't remember his name, but there's a great history of children in, in, in classical Athens um, where the historian addresses some of this saying, well, like there's this predominant view that children were just, they had the same status as slaves. They were viewed as animal-like, all this sort of stuff. And he said, that's, that's true, but it's wrong then to conclude that children um, just because children had the same status as slaves, that they were viewed as like having the same value as slaves. For mm. example, like two families. He says, no, 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 children participate in family life in a way that slaves don't. And also we have responsibilities towards children, like education, right? I mean, that's hugely important for Plato and Aristotle. Like there's, there's responsibilities, education towards children that we don't have towards animals. And we don't have towards slaves, um, even though he'll talk about children as as being animal-like and that sort of mm. stuff, right? But but there's no corresponding responsibility to like teach your pigs how to read, right? So um, I think there's there's kind of two. They sometimes overlap, but but I think a lot of times that um, in theology of children and in stuff written on children more generally they're talking about how we understand childhood um, and then asking and then inferring from that, whether or not they thought children were actually humans. It's kind of a difficult question to put to those sources. So I think that's a differentiation that has to be made that sometimes isn't in the literature. Great. Thanks. It would almost, it would almost seem like, like um, 
Idea is uh, standing in for development in yeah. in classical sources, which is why like you get you get all that weird uh, quasi eugenic uh, talk in in the Republic with you know the kids kids ought not to know who their natural parents are. They need at least the the elite class, right? They need to be um, inducted straight away into this somewhat anonymous uh formation in philosophy and and everything else um completely divorced from family life and and whatnot yeah well because because you have to look at the goal there the goal there right is that that children become good citizens grow up to be good yeah. citizens not like good family members for example and good rulers you know specifically yeah, so. yeah. i mean saying that I guess we'll get to Aristotle later, but you know, Aristotle uses a mother's relationship to a child as like an exemplar of true friendship. So, you know, you yeah, do, you do see some of the, some of this, but um, anyways, so, so like I said, so the first few kind of wall identifies, which I think is about true is, is top down. So, and you see this like all the way through the history of theology. So someone like Jonathan Edwards um, is going to think about this like very obsessed, obsessed. I'm going to go with obsessed about the sin of children. Um, and, uh, um, which interestingly enough, a lot of kind of discussions of childhood and what childhood means in the history of theology, uh, basically take place, um, in the context of, uh, a debate about whether the, about the holy innocence, the massacre of the holy innocence, about whether or not, like, so, uh, for those of you who don't know what that is, basically after Jesus was born. Herod was really interested in um, getting rid of him. So he had all of the boys in the area under the age of two killed. Uh, known throughout Christian history and art and whatever is the massacre of the holy innocents. Um, and one of the big debates, especially after the Protestant Reformation, was, well, mm. were they actually saved? Because they were unbaptized infants. And so after you have the introduction of the, of the idea of original sin, by Augustine, um, this becomes a pertinent question. If they were unbaptized um, and they already have original sin, essentially, are they saved? And so a lot of, a lot of um, what we get from views of children in the history of theology actually come from these debates. So um, anyways, the top-down view. Then the second view, um, Wall calls it a, a bottom-up view. Um, and so he identifies it with like, John Chrysostom, uh, with Rousseau, with Schleiermacher, and with Jesus. Which, as a side note, I just want to say, if you're a theological ethicist and you're putting forward a view, you always want Jesus on your side. You don't want to be like, Jesus thought this, but I'm going to be like, nah, that view is wrong. And if you want to get, if you want to have to be put in a bucket, you want to be in the same bucket as Jesus. <laughs> right? Like, I thought that was like, I thought you learned that in Sunday school. Anyways. Uh, whether so, whatever. If 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 John Wall, by some miracle, is listening, uh, um, you know, this is my opinion about no, it. Hey, good for Schleiermacher. That's all I'm saying. Yeah, I was gonna say Anne Rousseau and John Chrysostom. Like, apparently, they're in the right. Anyways, but basically, the bottom-up view um, is that children aren't dem demonstrative of humanity's depravity, but instead, they are demonstrative of its natural, pure, and simple goodness. So, children have this original goodness. Um, that we have to appreciate and nurture, um, and especially for someone like Rousseau, depravity specifically comes from um, contact with human society. So, um, you know, man is born free, and everywhere he is in chains. But basically, and, and this is mostly, this is shown out best in Rousseau's Emile, which is... Um, a book about essentially education. And so the idea here is that um, the children need to be kept separate from society, need to nurture this natural goodness. And so there's a real focus in this view on um, uh, on the goods of childhood, on the things that we need to learn. And there's generally an idealization of childhood, like in Schleiermacher's uh, Christmas play, um, Christmas story, the child, so who's named Sophia, um, basically reveals all these truths to the adults by the simplicity of her her thinking and questioning. So she sees 
you know, truth and wisdom in a way that the adults don't. Um, and that's somehow basically uh, fundamental to being a child. And we lose that ability when we grow up. So when you read uh, Mark Rothko's notes about art, somebody compiled uh, these sort of various things that he'd written about art into a book. Uh, and Rothko basically says, look, you can't teach children to make art because you don't have to. His view is that children have this kind of innate capacity for play uh, and that it's, it's in your development into adulthood that you uh, develop the sort of social inhibitions that make the play required to make art difficult. And so really, here's a kind of anamnetic account of art making uh, where what you have to do is remember how to, how to play without this kind of social inhibition. Right. And um, Bob Doran says something similar, chapter 18 or 19 of TDH, um, because we've gone this long without a TDH shout out. Um, <laughs> says something basically like that, you know, for Lonergan, children uh, are the exemplars of this unrestricted desire to know and like, you know, capacity for wonder and all this, and that we can keep this as adults, but for the most part, we don't. We get jaded and, and all that sort of stuff. So. Um, I mean, that's, that's sort of the basic plot of Emile too, right? Where you have to, you know, you're raised the, the sort of heroes raised separately from, from society. And so it doesn't have the same, uh, sort of, in, uh, uh, structures and limitations on, on his sort of imagination. Right. Yeah. Although, I mean, Emile is interesting because that's true, except that he's being raised to basically become an ideal tutor. So there's still this well, like right, yeah. future adult oriented goal for Emil, even in a book that's purportedly basically entirely about um, the, the goods of childhood and, and keeping children mm-hmm. children. So anyways. And maybe and maybe this is getting out ahead of you, but but you know, with, with Lonergan's point there about the, the the evidence of the unrestricted desire to know in children. Uh, in, in the manifestation of the sort of endless questions, you know, why, why, why? I always think of uh, Dana Carvey has a very old joke about his, his son being super cute and his son coming to him and saying, Daddy, does God have feet? Which is just the cutest thing you've ever heard. Uh, but the, the other side of that point for Lonergan is um, that the, the child's questions are unstructured. Right? That they don't, they don't, uh, lead along a line of inference or a methodical direction. It's just every stray question that comes to mind. Mommy, daddy, why is the sky blue? Why are my pants long? You know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, yeah. on and on and on. Or, or sometimes they ask questions that follow very logically, um, but uh, adults don't ask for a very like a variety of very good reasons, as in the case of, of a woman I know who miscarried and was explaining to a young toddler that, mm. you know, that her baby had died. And the toddler's rather unfortunate, but very honest response was, oh, will all your babies die? Mm. Which you would never ask and you would teach your children fairly quickly not to ask, but it's a totally logical question following on that. Right. Um, and a so, question, a question that, that someone might ask themselves in the privacy of their own thoughts. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah. Anyway, so he kind of like this bottom up view. So, um, you know, children have a lot of gifts and wisdom and they're, and I mean, while again, he thinks in the first few kind of children aren't fully human in this top down, whereas in the bottom view, you know, the bottom up view they are. I don't, I'm just not sure if you can actually place that question so easily on, on those historical sources for the reasons I talked about, but, but there we go. Um, and then basically the, the final view that, that wall kind of, um, he doesn't take the, there are two views and I'm going to like take the perfect one that splits the middle. Um, he actually's like, there's another one that basically splits the mute middle, but he's not super happy. He, it's, it's, it's not good enough for him either. And that's basically what he calls a developmental view. So there's neither an imposed higher moral order nor an original goodness. But basically, there's a gradual and progressive realization of human ethical potential over the course of time, right? So we basically start out in some sort of like blank slate or ethical neutrality or something like that. And basically, 
our potential is is unfolded over the course of personal history, right? So he identifies this with Aristotle, Thomas Aquinas, um, Erasmus, uh, John Locke, oh, right? So, um, yeah, I mean, Locke's really like when it comes to children, a developmentalist, not a more than anything else. Um, and so, and, and and he, you know, he sees this view, and I think quite rightly is kind of a dialectic between the top and bottom approaches. Um, so, you know, you acknowledge that there's temporality to childhood um, and that, that childhood is, is morally complex um, and also basically, but at the same time, you have this um, uh, this, you know, essentially future-oriented goal where basically, you know, and, and, and the developmental view tends to focus really heavily on education. So, I mean, and the interesting thing is, I think in my view, all three of them do. It's just a different kind of education. Like Plato's obviously very concerned with education. Um, Rousseau's very concerned with education. Mm. Um, it's more the type of education you have concern for um, differs basically basically on your view. And so, right, go ahead. Oh, yeah. Uh, I was just going to ask, you know, does he give a, give a treatment of Piaget um, in the developmental or does he sort of stick to philosophers and theologians? He doesn't, yeah, because he's really interested, and he's really sticking to, like, he's giving a history of ethics, mm. and, and mostly theological ethics, though, of course, I mean, he's obviously included non-theologians in there. Um, I th- but I think his typology applies fairly roughly to the history of theology in general, um, that, that you find basically... Um, three, you know, three predominant views in the history of, of theology of children, which is either a real focus on the innocence and the gifts of childhood, or you have a real focus on depravity and original sin, or you have this, this focus on basically um, this lifelong development. And so, um, yeah, and then that's kind of like a, a historical approach. And Theology of children as it exists today, there's not a lot of it, um, really. Like, uh, actually, when I went in with kind of chat, had a meeting with my supervisor about this much earlier in my program, and I was like, "There's not much there," and he's like, "No, no." He's like, "There's got to be. There's got to <laughs> be stuff. You just you've just missed it." And I said, I, "Maybe I did." And he spent um, quite a while looking. He's like, "Oh no, there really just isn't much." Um, so theology of children as it exists today all begin with basically working off of the starting point that children are fully human. So um, this shouldn't really be surprising since that's basically being a claim made by Christianity and then the Jews before them for really as long as um, they've been around. It's tied to ideas of the Imago Dei. And basically um, you can quibble a bit about whether the logical outcome of their um, of their viewpoints is that children kind of only potentially share in the Imago Dei or they already fully do. Um, but I think the laws around like treatment of children, killing children, like, the, you know, all that sort of stuff kind of indicate that uh, the penalties for killing a child are the same penalties as for killing an adult and that sort of thing, you know. So I think, and I think that, um, I mean, there's really no one in the history of theology who's like, actually, like, children don't participate in the Imago Dei and that sort of stuff. So um, a lot of theology of children start with this, like, making the point that children are fully human. Um, and um, and it's probably a good one to make, although they don't usually engage with any kind of, like, modern sources that are asking that question. So um ends up being a, a good foundation to start from, but maybe not um, not as useful as it could be in a modern setting. Um, yeah, does Wall does Wall um, I mean is 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 he making a prescription at any point, or is he just trying to lay out a basic typology to kind of organize the data? So I mean, we we could talk about Wall's project. It's quite interesting. Um, the typology is kind of an introduction to his project, where he okay. is um, introducing his own vision for theological ethics of children that is based on. It's kind of a he he describes it as a a program of um of childism so much like there's feminism which kind of 
said, hey, look, when you did your like theological anthropologies and all this sort of stuff, you like forgot half of humanity and kind of like, all right, what do women tell us about what does it mean to be human, right? And he's kind of doing the same project. Well, what do children, so if children are fully human, what do children tell us about what it means to be human? And so he wants to lay out like an understanding of human beings and kind of our aims and our ethical obligations um, based on essentially reformulating it around a thing that fully includes children. And that's very true for a lot of like theology of children as well. Um, in making the argument for um, for children being fully human, they usually postulate some sort of definition of children, right? So, um, which which may or may not work. Like what, um, Jensen, David Jensen, I think um, he writes a uh, he's got a book, um, kind of on theology of children, where he argues that to be a child means uh, first, to be chosen by God, second, to be open and vulnerable to the grace that makes life possible, and three, to be a pilgrim oriented Godward and towards the present. Um, I found the pilgrim thing especially funny because his book is uh, published by Pilgrim Press. <laughs> thought, yeah, you just want to like shove pilgrim like, if only Erdman's was a word I could like use in my, <laughs> like the thesis statement of my dissertation. Um, but so and 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 I, I choose I pick on Jensen a little bit just because I think like to be a child is to be chosen by God to be open to the grace that makes life possible and to be like God oriented. Well, that definition covers human beings in general, right? Yeah. And so you could make an argument that that applies to my dog. Well, I mean, all dogs do go to heaven. So That's what I'm saying. Yeah, um, and, and and I have an, a number of very silly David Bentley Hart essays at the back of First Things to back me up on that. Yeah, <laughs> and I mean, I mean, like you could even say that generally about like creation as a whole, right? Yeah. Chosen mm-hmm. by God, um, open and vulnerable to the grace that makes life possible, and maybe maybe the pilgrim part not so much. Like I don't know if roses go on pil- you know, or pilgrim, but you know, oriented God words and whatnot. So, um. Maybe so maybe this, not comprehensor, but maybe viator. <laughs> so, th- and this is, and this brings me to like one of my, one of the big questions that I think that needs to be dealt with and that I keep coming back to in my own work, which is that, well, each of us understands our life as a whole, right? Like we don't just leave our childhood behind us. It's incredibly formative of who we are. It, we come back to it all the time, as can be seen. And and we try to pass our childhood on like to our own children, as can be seen by like all my peers who keep dressing their toddlers up in Star Wars clothes, like, um, you know. So you know, and 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 I mean, I'm not really going to argue with the Christian conviction that children are human, like. Um, That's a relief. Yeah, I mean, it probably makes me a speech piece. That, that but- would get us that little red E, I think. On- <laughs> <laughs> Uh, children are dogs, and y'all can do what you want with them. Uh, actually, you can't really do like there's so many restrictions now on what you can do with your dog that like saying children's are dogs might actually be like an ethical like up. Well, when, <laughs> uh, this is probably a decade ago now, but uh, my best friend and I, when I was living in California, we uh, we went on a little uh, a mandate to go see. He likes Harlan Corbin novels, and uh, a French director had made an adaptation of this Harlan Corbin novel. So we went to the art house cinema in San Francisco to go see this foreign film uh, based on the sort of airplane read paperback, which is like, we both thought was hilarious. And uh, in the movie, uh, you know, it's a Harlan Corbin novel. People get knocked off. <laughs> but in one scene, some intruder shoots a dog and the whole theater audible gasp. <gasps> <laughs> and I heard one woman in front of me go, that's a bit much. <laughs> and we looked at each other and went, well, I guess we're in San Francisco. Yeah, she, she has never spent time on a farm. Um, uh, yeah, and my parents would always tell, like, when we lived in Germany when we were children, um, uh, my parents would always take us to, we'd, we'd eat out at the Italian restaurant because in Germany, it is totally acceptable to take your dog to a restaurant. The same does not apply to your children. Mm. Wow. Um, anyways, but, uh, and and in some ways, like, 
I don't see an inherent problem with certain aspects of speciesism. Like, it's interesting to me that in a lot of modern theology, especially like the, especially stuff that really like wants to hammer on the fact that we're embodied, um, isn't really interested in like the view that um, like part of part of what makes us human. And I don't want to be like hopelessly biologically determinant or anything, but part of what makes us human is the fact that we're born from other humans. Right, yeah, like natality is a big deal. Natality is a big deal. Yeah, there's a woman, um, Elizabeth O'Donnell Gandolfo, who writes a whole book on this, uh, the power and vulnerability of love. I think it's called. Um, and she's like, why, like, why doesn't natality ever focus in our understanding of what it means to be human? Like, why don't we, like, why aren't we starting philosophically with the fact that, like, we were born, you know, we we grew in the womb and then we were like passed out of the vagina of another human being. Um, and I'm, you know, and, and yes, one day we might make like, ba- you know, babies might be ge- like gestated outside and whatever. And like, frankly, I'm, De- as, far as, I'm, as far as I'm concerned, we can cross that bridge when we get there. But that raises whole other questions about like, whether that, whether those are human or not, like there's a really great CBC piece, in, uh, piece a number of years ago about, um, whether we should feed polar bears as kind of like the ice caps melt and stuff. And they had a number of people on there. And one of them was uh, an ethicist from the University of Toronto who does animal ethics, who basically said, well, the problem is the polar bear is going to die out either way. Because when you feed a polar bear, you change what it is. It's no longer a wild animal. And that like so you know like genetically it's identical, like all that sort of stuff. But part of being a polar bear is the um, the hunting knowledge that's passed down from like mother to cub, part of it is is the fact that they're wild. And once you start feeding them, essentially like it's kind of a little bit depressing because it's like, well, there's no way to save polar, you know, polar bears if they have nothing to eat because you can save a facsimile of them, but essentially it changes what they are. So, but that's a whole other conversation and which I'm happy to have at some point. But I think for now, human beings are born from other human beings. And if, even if that's not like, a timeless universal um it's still pertinent <laughs> that digression we into, are. In, that digression into the the metaphysics of polar bears made me just so glad i'm not an ethicist because <laughs> that's a perfectly reasonable question to have to ask and answer and i'm just really glad i mostly don't have to we're, we're also getting dangerously close to uh you know derrida and feeding the cats that's right. yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> So uh, we're going to pivot away from that. Awesome. <laughs> right meow. Um, oh, wow. <laughs> Congratulations. Thanks. Anyways, you know, so, so, um, but going all the way back, like, you know, so we are, we're born of our mothers, like it or not. And that's formative of who we are. And that's, I mean, partly visible in the fact that parental abandonment has such a, a terrible, um, effect on children um you know so but we will understand our life as a whole we don't just leave our childhood behind but that remains with us um even the earliest bits of our childhood um and uh you know so 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 a lot of these works really focus well like on children as you know a lot of the theology of of children's like well what can we learn from the goods of childhood and all this but there's a whole other separate question that i think needs to be dealt with as well And that's the fact that there are definite ways, and this is something that like the top-down view and like the developmental view really understand is that there are ways where children are just fundamentally different from us. And and part of this is expressed, and like this is a concern that obviously stop really quick there, just to um, have developed a strange sensitivity to this. Maybe not strange, but a sensitivity either way. Um, So you used a uh, collective plural personal pronoun, us. Children are different from us. Who is us there? Well, in, that, in this case, I'm just saying, like, adults generally. Okay. As, as a generic. And, and we could parse out the exact, like, what's the difference between a child and an adult? Because I think one of the real disadvantage of, of, of a lot of modernist positions is that it, like, imagines a hard line, right? And especially because our legal definitions often govern children, right? As if, like, right. so when you're 17, you're not an adult. And when you're 18, you are. Like, um, one thing I really like about developmental views is that there's an understanding that this is a gradual process that continues, like, 
for basically your entire life. Um, but when you're talking about especially things like protection of children, as well as like the goods of childhood, those are those all require being able to define ways in which children are different from us. Us as that generic adults of, you know, over 18-ish, whatever. Um, but that, that children are um, more malleable in their ways of thinking, and so they learn much more quickly, but they're also um, much more vulnerable to, ha- like, that kind of developmental harm. So um, when children become child soldiers, it's not just that, like, they might be wounded, like, physically wounded or die in battle, that that that's constitutes harm to them. And it constitutes harm in, and, and maybe not, this isn't, I mean, battle isn't my area of expertise. So whether the harm is different in kind from, say, like, adults who are soldiers or different in just amount is, is something I can't really speak to. But, um, uh, lack of um, lack of nurturing touch has, like, especially for infants, has uh, long-lasting um, implications if they survive at all. Um, in a in a study that would never ever be approved anymore by ethics boards, in the 1940s, Renee Spitz did a study, um, basically of children of incarcerated mothers. And he split all these babies, infants, into two groups. And some of them were placed in um, an orphanage that um, basically catered to their physical needs, but they had basically no interaction with adults. And the other group, um, they placed in a, um, basically, care facilities that were attached to the prison. So they had regular and ongoing not only like physical support, but basically like emotional attachment with adults. Um, I actually thought that this study was apocryphal for a long time until I actually found a citation for it um, and, and Renee Fitz's books. But basically the children in the first group, um, most of them died. And the ones who didn't, like lagged, by the time they were two, like lagged far behind in verbal development, in movement, in ability to make eye contact like and I don't know what happened to them as they grew up and um it's 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 a terrible study in one way like it's radically unethical to like choose a group of children to basically um die when you could have prevented it but um it's it's kind of a fascinating and there's a lot of 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 more recent research on the importance of like skin on skin and touch you know and face-to-face contact with uh, both premature infants and just regular infants in terms of um, not only for them thriving at that point, but for the development of their cognitive capacity. So like massive differences in the cognitive outcomes between children who had skin contact with adults and children who didn't, for example. Um, so anyways, but, so children are, are so vulnerable to harm in a way that I think um, in general, like adults aren't quite as much. And also um, children learn things at a pace that most of us wish we could. For those of us who like didn't study a language until we were adults, you know, like you're always kicking yourself. You're like, I could have started learning this when I was five and it would basically be a part of me. So I think there's ways um, in which saying that children are fully human is not quite the same as saying that like children are adults. And so in my work, this becomes especially important because when you're talking about children participating in decision-making, um, you want to be really aware of the ways in which children are open to, to coercion, to suggestion, to, um, to all that sort of stuff, um, and kind of like think through a coherent way, um, which, you know, is kind of one of my projects to, to try to think through that coherent way. So. Um, yeah, so that's basically like theology of children in general. I don't know where we're at for time, but basically let's have questions and then we can talk about like one particular project if we have that time. No, probably not. Right, right. We can do a we can do a round two in another episode. How about that? Sure. 
Um, I, I, you know, I was uh, on the question of, of the vulnerability of children. I've got two. I've got a, a three-year-old and an almost 18-month-old. Um, and I don't have any scholarly reason to say this, except that I have a kind of uh, both as, a, as someone who was someone's child and now has children of his own, a kind of intuition that um, it, it seems nearly an impossible task to give children everything they need. Right. I mean, you, you can give them everything they need in the sense of like survival in terms of their, their physical needs, but, but the permeability of that to interpersonal, intersubjective development, to the development of their intellects, their emotional uh, capacities and facilities and differentiation and resiliency. Um, I, I sort of almost can't shake the sense that, that uh, it's, all, it's, it's nigh impossible to shake or to shake, to escape childhood without some kind of uh, resentment for the deficiencies of your upbringing. That there's so many, that human beings are so complex, um, that, that there's so much we need to come to the, the sort of full fruition of what we are. Uh, that like everybody has something they could talk to a therapist about, <laughs> about their upbringing. Um, because even if, I, just, to be, just to be candid about my own experience as a parent, um, the comedian Jay Moore ter- tells a, a terrible story, honestly, uh, about uh, his sister coming into his bedroom uh, with a packed bag. And she, ha- she says, we, we have to leave. Dad's drinking again. And Jay said to his sister, how do you know that? And she said, he told me he loved me. Wow. Right. Um, and so, and so Jay Moore says, my commitment is to be, and, and he's a sober person. And his, he said, my commitment is to be, and I love you, dad, um, to, to be someone who, whose kids will know because I told them and showed them that I love, uh, and I, and I, I heard that and I went, uh, uh, yeah, I, I want to do that. Um, and so I feel a certain facility with being, and I love you, dad, with being an affectionate, expressive, um, dad. I am struggling to no end to be on the sort of, when I say the other side of that coin, to be uh, a kind of structured, reliable, uh, you know, sort of uh, steady, you know, here are the expectations, here are the consequences, especially with my three-year-old, right? As my three-year-old sort of begins to verge on something like a moral consciousness, um, I find that hugely difficult. And I'm, and I'm just conscious of the fact that like, I'm going to let this kid down in this, in this department because I don't have what it takes to do it really well. Um, and so I, I'm sort of curious about, Robin, um, how, one, how one thinks about uh, the, the sort of, uh, I don't even know what words to use, the sort of interweaving moral valences of the responsibility of parents to children, but also then uh, the fact that Adults are made of the ch- the childhoods they have, um, and the capacities they have are in some ways. You know, my uh, my own deficiencies are probably no doubt in response to, um, sorry, mom and dad deficiencies in my own upbringing that I know are in response to deficiencies in their upbringing that are themselves in response to deficiencies of my uh, totally dysfunctional alcoholic great great grandparents. Um, Anyway, I'm just, I'm just curious if, there, if there's a way of dealing with not just children sort of in, in sort of the essence of what childhood is, but the sort of intergenerationality of childhood. Because um, that seems to me that, to be the sort of next question, right? That if you're going to deal with the development of persons through childhood into adulthood, you also have to deal with the fact that um, children are raised by somebody who is raised by somebody and so on. So you end up dealing with having, you end up having to deal with human beings as not just in, in virtue of natality per se, but in virtue of intergenerationality. Um, and I don't even know if that's a question in that area or. Yeah. Um, I mean, actually the, the thing that I kind of picked up on in, in, in your discussion is, is, is you use the, you use the term full fruition of, of what we are, right. For, you know, this impossibility of bringing children to the full fruition of what we are. And one of the big questions in, um, theology of children that, that has started to be asked is, and, and that has always been asked in philosophical and theological anthropology more generally is, well, what is that full fruition of what we are, right? So Carl Rahner's ideas for in theology of children, which we won't have time to talk about today, but I'll maybe plug for a 
for a next conversation, sees um, the full fruition of what we are as uh, basically an eschatological childhood. Mm. And so then he goes in to argue that our understanding of what it means to be an earthly father and an earthly mother, and I think you could extrapolate that, an earthly grandfather, an earthly grandmother and whatnot, um, is always has to follow secondarily on how we understand God's fatherhood. Um, and so, anyways, I just picked up on that as kind of a side issue in your question, but that, that becomes a really big one when you're talking about, well, like, deficiencies in, in the parenting for generations. Well, what are your goals? Like, what are you deficient from? Um, that being said, yeah, it's, um, yeah, like, your parents fucked up and grandparents fucked up and probably you're going to fuck up when you raise your children and, and so on and so forth. But it keeps therapists um, in business. But I, I think that... And, and now we're definitely getting that little ready. All right. <laughs> sorry. Sorry, team. Um, but it, um, I, I think for me, the starting point is that is to acknowledge that basically um, who we are as an adult is a product of a whole legacy of, of beliefs and of whatever, which we, which we navigate as best we can. And then that's fundamentally where we, we find our like ethical responsibility and agency and, and even autonomy in some sense is not like in an abstract or separate way from all of this, but rather we receive what has been given to us good and bad um and we work through that as best we can the things that we reflect on and think we're bad we we do what we can to change uh and the things that we think are good we do what we can to to pass on and i mean just kind of essentially what tradition is right um but but i think it's a good like i don't want to ever suggest um that like you know things like agency and personal responsibility and selfhood are somehow not important um, in our, in who we are as persons. Um, but that never happens in the abstract. It never happens alone. Like we don't start like, you know, this is where I think Locke was fundamentally wrong. We don't start as a blank slate. We start, um, we receive all of these things, good and bad from our parents and, um, and our grandparents and their parents and so on and so forth and then we navigate who we are through that and I think as humans that we can't do much more than that there's no like um but but how we do that depends on what we think essentially the the full fruition of 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 who and, and what we are ends up being that the types of navigating we're doing and the types of ways that we're going to go are going to depend on what we think that full fruition looks like that's that's the sort of odd uh, experience I always have as a as a parent, and especially as a parent who does the the lion's share of the primary caregiving, is that um, one one of the things that I'm responsible for is my daughter coming to take responsibility for herself, mm-hmm. and so it, it's it's not just protecting her from the the innate vulnerabilities of being a toddler, of which there are many, but her own. Uh, her own agency and autonomy because it's not yet fully operative is itself vulnerable. And so you're you're constantly walking this tightrope between wanting to um, protect her other vulnerabilities and trying to um, protect her own freedom to be herself and to figure out who that self is. Uh, and so as a, as a parent, you're always having to do both things. Um, and, and they, they off, often seem like vectors at cross purposes with one another, but, uh, there we are. Well, uh, thank you very much, Robin, for, uh, that orientation to, uh, to a field I knew nothing about before yeah, today. Same. Same. That's terrific. And yeah, we'll, we'll come back to it and dig into some, uh, some more particular questions about agency and identity and things like that with children i'd love to i'd love to come back and dig more deeply so this week uh for treasures old and new we have uh rolled the die and they've come up john so john uh give us some treasure 
Yeah. So my, my treasure old is a book that I inflict on people as much as I possibly can. And it's a work in uh, sort of broadly in scripture studies, uh, which is not my area, but that I found very interesting. And it was published in 84, 84 85. Uh, and it's by a, a Jesuit named uh, Walsh, J.P.M. Walsh, who was at Georgetown. He might still be at Georgetown. Um, and it's called The Mighty from Their Thrones, Power in the Biblical Tradition. And the thing that I really like about this text, and it's one that I use to structure the way I teach, especially the Hebrew Bible, but Bible in general, um, and, and Christian thought more broadly, is it, it does a really nice job of breaking down the intersection between notions of authority, right? who gets to have power, how we allot power, who, uh, who decides who gets to have power, Issues of, of justice, but not just of justice as some sort of uh, definitional matter, but justice as a kind of, he uses the word consensus, right? A, a felt sense of what is right and wrong that's shared by a community. And he also talks about, uh, he talks about it in terms of citizenship. Uh, I will sometimes talk with my students about it in terms of uh, social imaginaries, right? Of, of being a part of com- a community that sees the world in a certain way. And one of the things Walsh does really nicely in this work as he goes through, especially the Hebrew Bible, uh, the, the treatment of the New Testament is, is not as strong, in my opinion, uh, but, but looks at the way in which Israel is a kind of political experiment, uh, and one in which the organizing anxieties, I think Walter Brueggemann picks this up a little bit in his uh, 2014 book, the name of which I can't remember, um, but, but it's an experiment in which the, the organizing anxieties of Babylon or Egypt around survival around security, around fertility, are, are handed over in a way to God's authority so that other values can emerge into the religious and economic and political space of Israel's life. Um, concern for outsiders, widows, orphans, etc. Um, so I, I commend that one to you. I find, it, I find it's really shaped my thinking about questions of power um, in terms of scripture, but Christianity more broadly. And then My Treasure New is actually a book that hasn't come out yet. And I was going to talk about a different book, but I saw it pop up, pop up on my feed uh, today on Twitter and then on Facebook. And it's an edited volume edited by uh, Robert P. George, who will be known to many of you, but also co-edited by a guy named R.J. Snell. And RJ was my philosophy instructor at North Park University when I was, well, we, when we were both Protestants in, in, at North Park in Chicago. Uh, RJ introduced me to Lonergan and the Catholic intellectual tradition more broadly. A lot of the questions that I'm still working on are questions that came up while he was teaching me. Uh, and RJ has since become Catholic, as have I. And the book that's coming out that RJ and uh, Robert P. George are editing or have edited is called Mind, Heart, and Soul, Intellectuals, and the Path to Rome. Um, RJ is at the Witherspoon Institute, uh, which is at Princeton, I guess. And uh, his his interests and predilections and outlook have always been a shade more conservative than my own. So that may speak also to the the accounts in Mind, Heart, and Soul. But uh, it's supposed to be narratives of intellectuals who have found their way into the Catholic Church. And, you know, when it comes out, I will check it out. I don't have a, a date or anything on that, but um, RJ is a sharp and responsible guy, so I'm sure that it is an interesting volume, if nothing else. And those are my treasures old and new. Thanks, John. All right, y'all. That's been our episode. If you want to shoot us an email, you can email us at systematicallypodcast at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter at systematicpod. Our intro and outro music, as always, is track 14 off of Ghost 2 by Nine Inch Nails. Thank you, Trent Reznor, and your Creative Commons license. And I thought I'd mention a little something about my sign-off, which which changes each week. And it's because I cycle through what Lonergan called the transcendental precepts. Be attentive, be intelligent, be reasonable, be responsible. Uh, in honor of Jeremy Blackwood, who I'll get to see next weekend at Lonergan on the Edge, though that will have already passed when the show goes up. Uh, I will add at some point, be in love with God. And these are, uh, as our friend Joe Gordon once put it, against such thing there is no law. They are the guidelines for authentic consciousness from Lonergan. 
to be attentive, to take in all the data, to be intelligent, to ask and answer every relevant question, to be reasonable, to make sure that you've grasped the virtually unconditioned before you make a judgment, to be responsible, to make sure you've made an authentic judgment of value before you act, and to be in love with God, the source of all authenticity. So anyway, this week, my exhortation to you is be responsible. Thanks. Thank you.